you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com, thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you and all the other people around you right now, but just mostly you for tuning in and being a part of the show. You can refer the show to your friends, neighbors, relatives. Go to thecvpn.com, the Chris Voss Podcast Network.com. It's this really cool technology. They have a network of podcasts it's really wild there's nine of them so check them out be sure to go subscribe uh, make some good recommends on the show so all that good stuff give them five stars if you would yeah uh, if you want to watch the video version of this and all the other podcasts we do you can go to youtube.com forward slash chris voss hit that bell ding notification button so you get all the notifications on your phone of all the amazing authors, books, and people that we interview on the Chris Foss Show. Today, we have a most excellent author. He is author of a multitude of books. Like, I, I couldn't even count that high. He has so many books. And he is a New York Times and international bestseller. His name is Dan Hampton. And he is a retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant. Uh, Colonel Dan Hampton is one of the most decorated fighter pilots since the Vietnam War. How's that? He was awarded a Purple Heart and four Distinguished Flying Crosses with Valor. Throughout his 20-year career, he flew 151 combat missions in the Middle East during both Gulf Wars and Kosovo. He's a graduate of the elite U.S. Air Force Academy uh, Fighter Weapons School and USN Top Gun School and U.S. Air Force Special Operations School. Uh, Dan has lived abroad in Europe, in the Middle East, and was an exchange officer with the Egyptian Air Force. Welcome to the show. How are you doing, Dan? Chris, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm glad you, uh, you asked me, and let's get to it. Thanks. Thanks, man. Uh, that's, that's an impressive resume, dude. That seriously is. So you've written this book, and the book that you've uh, written that just got launched, published out to this week, so you definitely want to pick this baby up, is Operation Vengeance, the astonishing aerial ambush that changed World War II. Uh, tell us what brought you to write the book and what the uh, overview it is. Well, the, the book is, is about uh, the the killing of Admiral Yamamoto, who was the head of the Japanese combined fleet. More to the point for Americans, he was the guy that planned the attack on Pearl Harbor that got us into World War II. So we had quite a grudge against this guy. In fact, he was the most hated man in America in 1942, according to time, I think. Uh, everybody wanted to see this guy dead for different reasons. And we had a unique opportunity to go get him because we knew exactly where he would be at a certain a certain time on one day. And so they threw this mission together to go to go get the guy. Uh, as with most of my books, Chris, you know, it's because I, I get into it based on the, the research that I'm doing for something else. And I had run across some obscure references to this. I knew about it, but not much while I was doing a, a previous book. And it occurred to me that, hey, if I could craft it just right and put people into the cockpit like I like to do, 
it could be a book itself. And sure enough, it is. This is the great thing about your books. You have a lot of experience of what that's like. You know, I grew up as a kid reading about uh, Red Baron. Baba Black Sheep was one of my things. I, you know, I read a lot of books about the Marines and and the beaches and Air Force uh, when I was a kid, and uh, the lore and the and the and and, and the experience of what went on there and, and battle and everything. You know, just seemed so glorious to me at the time. And so you have a lot of this from your experience, and so you can put you know, that was into the books and, and uh, what, what the story's about. So can you give us a layout of the story of uh, Operation Vengeance? Yeah, essentially, um, this is, we, we got into the Pacific, as everybody knows, uh, right after Pearl Harbor. There was the Doolittle Raid, there was the Battle of the Coral Sea, there was the Battle of Midway, and then the Americans finally got a little bit of breathing room because of the Battle of Midway and were able to take a couple of deep breaths and begin to fight back. And they began to fight back on a tiny little island nobody had heard about called Guadalcanal. And because we were able to hold on on Guadalcanal, we could now use that island as a base for other things in the Pacific, including this mission. If we hadn't captured Guadalcanal, this mission never would have been possible. Hmm. Lots of great stories out there about that. The Pacific, the HBO miniseries, probably the best one I've ever seen. Um, anyway, these pilots now could range around and fight the Japanese and attack, you know, when they needed to. And so uh, when, when the opportunity presented itself, when we knew where he was going to be for one day at a certain time, they said, hey, you know, we've got the planes, we've got the pilots. Let's see if we can throw this together and go get the, the SOB because he deserves it. And was this like t- chopping the head off the snake? Basically, this guy was the top dog, and, and if they knew if they hit him, it would make a difference? He wasn't, he wasn't really the top dog. He was the commander-in-chief of the combined mm-hmm. fleet. Um, and the army, the Japanese army, really controlled Japan, not the Japanese Navy. But he was the best admiral that they had, and he was the one that knew the most probably about the Americans and how we thought and how we fought. He'd lived here. You know, he knew us. Uh, he, he knew what we were capable of, which is why he knew he didn't have much time to win, because he knew what would happen <laughs> if he didn't win very quickly. Uh, and, and sure enough, that's that's exactly what happened. Uh, the interesting thing about 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 killing him was, I think, and I put this in the book, that shortened the war. All right. Or at least made it less less costly than it was because as as smart as this guy was and as much as he knew about us he would have made our eventual victories even more bloody so how many people are alive today because their fathers and grandfathers didn't die you know in the pacific because of this mission that's the interesting point that's pretty amazing so did they did they succeed in the mission yeah so uh, on april 18th in 1943 exactly one year to the day after the doolittle mission over tokyo these guys uh, took off. They flew 400 and something miles over water without landmarks to intercept Yamamoto as he was descending to land into an airfield on Bougainville. Wow. Uh, like I said, up, up, up from the Solomons. Um, and the amazing thing about the flying is, and I try again, I got this into the book as well. I mean, I was a jet pilot. I had satellites and GPS and all sorts of other cool toys. The guy that led this mission, a major named John Mitchell, he had a a wristwatch and he had a compass, a big Navy (laughs) compass that he had the Navy mount in his his cockpit. That's what he had and a map. Okay, And he had put all this together, 
you know, uh, just, just basically the day before uh, to make this happen. To most of these guys, it was just another combat mission. To John Mitchell, it was. To Rex oh. Barber, the guy that shot Yamamoto, it was. But it still doesn't take away anything from the, from the sheer piloting skill and airmanship to get these guys 400 miles deep into enemy territory over water, no landmarks within a minute of when they needed to be there. It's wow. amazing. Yeah, that's quite extraordinary. It's amazing the stuff our our, our forefathers, I guess you call, them, <laughs> did in World War Two. And it's like, yeah, strap some gasoline's uh, tanks on there, and yeah, we'll make that fly. We'll just make that work. <laughs> yeah, people people need to remember that when they they deal with America. You know, the Japanese and others since and even now think, yeah, it's a chaotic place. They can never get themselves together. They're weak. They're this. They're that. And yet we always pull through and just spank the crap out of everybody that, that tries to mess with us. And that's certainly what you just said is very, very true. Americans are superb at improvising. And yeah. when push comes to shove, we'll make it happen. And he did. Yeah. I remember reading the books back then of the taking of the islands and the Pacific islands. And it was, it was atrocious. The, the cost of the Marines that would be piled up on the beach. Like if you knew where you were in the first, like one to five or one to seven Marines that were in the first one to seven waves going on the beach, you knew your body was just going to be used as, as cover for the next guy. Um, it, It was just, it was just, and the bravery of them just to, just to be like, well, go for it or Marines um, and fight over those stupid little islands. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we owe those guys a lot. And I, yeah. uh, one of my biggest purposes for writing these books is to remind people of that. And I hope they do. I hope they, they read this and they think, wow, you know, we, we, we owe these guys a huge debt. So let's remember them. Yeah. In fact, I was reading recently about how, um, uh, there was a couple scientists that were trying to get a hold of the president and they were trying to get him not to drop the bomb, the two bombs, uh, and maybe dump them into the Bay of Japan or something along those lines, something to do a show of force without killing so many people. Um, and there's always been that. And recently I saw the Hiroshima, um, annual thing that they do of the destruction of Hiroshima. And it's always that interesting thing of dealing with like, um, should we have done that? and 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 uh was it the right thing to do but honestly when you look at what was going on back then from what i read of history and what you read of history the japanese were man they were i mean there was just no stopping them they were just gonna keep on coming and and even for us to land on there and try and fight them on and and in japan was just going to be a bloodbath for our people yeah that's that to me that's the nail in that debate uh, you know, it's all well and good 80 years later to, to, to look back and second guess these people. And, and the sort of folks that do that really don't understand history. Yeah. Uh, if, if they think that 5 million casualties is worth not dropping the bombs and ending the war. Now, having been through several wars myself, I'll tell you, I personally think war is absolutely, absolutely the last answer. I don't ever want to do it again. Mm-hmm. Okay. But Sometimes it's necessary. And in the case of World War II, I think this is why this is such a still a popular subject with everyone, because it was black and white, because it was a war that had to be fought. Everyone since then, including all the ones I was in, you could argue, you know, six ways from Sunday about it. This one, we had to do it. And if we didn't do it to them, they were by God going to do it to us. 
and and the Japanese were not the Germans. The Germans would eventually get to the point as they did, and they'd roll over and say, "Okay, we give up." The Japanese weren't going to do that. There was no way short of invading the home islands, which, as I said, would have cost four million Japanese lives and a million American lives. Yeah. Or bombs which is why they did it i mean they didn't even they didn't even capitulate after the first one was dropped yeah they did that, that should tell you a lot right <laughs> they, they, we the had to stop a second one the city and they like we're gonna fight on and finally the emperor you know grew a spine and said no no this is this isn't going to end well we've, we've got to stop it now and he did yeah and in the stories of that, that came out of there i mean i grew up uh uh, building ships from the midway ships and reading all about the stuff. So I, I had a love of, of the stories that came out of there, but yeah, they attacked us. And I, I think the reason for them to sneak attack us from the Pearl Harbor thing was to try and cripple us. And, and, and probably from this, this guy that they uh, killed uh, to try and make it so that we, it would make it even harder for us to fight back if they succeeded. Well, that was Yamamoto's plan. As I mm. said, he, you know, he knew America, he knew Americans, uh, he, to paraphrase him, uh, the, the actual quotes in the book, but he said something like, you know, if you make me go to war with the United States, I'll run wild for six months or a year. But after that, I can make no promises because he knew very well how angry and vengeful this country could be. And he also knew our industrial capacity. Um, and so his plan then at Pearl Harbor and also at Midway was one massive strike, you know, one huge strike, let's wipe out their ability to fight back. And, and then we can sue, we, we can talk about peace. And as long as we get to hold on to the territory we've captured with the oil and the rubber and everything else that we need, we can have peace with the Americans. That was a miscalculation because there was never <laughs> going to be any peace after Pearl Harbor, but that was his thought. And that's a very Japanese imperial Japanese mindset the massive sudden blow they did it against the russians you know at the turn of the of the last century uh, they did it against the chinese that's a very a very japanese thing to do and that's what midway was all about he wanted to lure the fleet out into the middle of the ocean and then destroy it with aircraft carriers and battleships didn't work out very well for him though so they get to the they get to the island they they got it timed down to the minute um, you know, I imagine once they get in the airspace, it's going to be known that they're there. So they don't have like time to just go circle around and be like, yeah, yeah. we're just waiting to kill this dude. Right. Well, yeah. When they, they knew that there would be, once they hit Bougainville that, that, you know, obviously fighters would be scrambled. They thought, and, and they anticipated there were 80 Japanese zero fighters stationed on that wow. island. And that's why John Mitchell, there were 16 of these guys in four groups of four. We call them four ships. And Mitchell and, and, and 11 other guys were going to climb up as soon as they, because they, they were at 50 feet, 100 feet over the water to avoid detection. Once they hit Empress Augusta Bay, the 12 of them were going to climb up and go after the Japanese Zeros. They were looking forward to going 12 against 80. That should tell you a lot about how these guys thought. Uh, fighter pilots. <laughs> Anyway, and the other four were then going to go after the bomber. They only expected one bomber. Um, turns out there were two. And two of the four guys that were supposed to go after the bombers uh, turned back because they couldn't get their external – one guy couldn't get his external fuel tank off, and he didn't want to go into combat with uh, a tank full of gas hanging off of his belly. Oh, wow. Uh, I think at that point I would have gone anyway, but he didn't. So now there's only two P-38s. 
And now they see that there's two bombers. Two bombers. And you're right. They don't have much time, you know, because yeah. the, it's like kicking a, a hornet's nest. Those 80 Japanese fighters are going to come up and try to get them very quick. The whole thing lasted like nine minutes. Wow. Start to, start to finish. And the actual Yamamoto shoot down was about two minutes. Wow. So, uh, so they had, to, they had to do that old technique they used to have to do where they had to strap on extra fuel tanks to get those boys in and out of there, huh? They never would have made it otherwise. Yeah. Um, there was even as, as, as long range as the P-38 was, John Mitchell had to get extra tanks brought in the night before, and his ground crews stayed up all night uh, getting these extra tanks bolted onto these, these P-38s. They had like uh, 781 gallons altogether wow. of fuel, which to me as a jet pilot, you know, that's what I would land with. But, uh, you know, that's, that's what they had. And out of those 781 gallons, 736 were accounted for, for the flight up, you yeah. know, and the flight back. And then I think he only had 45 gallons left over for combat, which is about six and a half minutes. That's crazy, so man. They didn't have much time to do it at all. That is crazy. And so you tell the story of how they go into this. You lay out the characters, the gen the people who flew the planes and stuff. Uh, do you focus on just a few of the characters, all 11, or um, how does the story go? Well, the story starts out in the cockpit. Uh, mm -hmm. you're, you're actually sitting in the cockpit with Rex Barber. He's one of the P-38 pilots, and he's the man that eventually shoots down Yamamoto. Uh, and so... The way I like to, to write books is I'll do a, an action chapter, I like to call it, and, a, and a, a background chapter or something else. So, you know, you get tied up in the action and then you get a little break while you read about why they're there or who they are or the historical context. And then you get back into the action. I find that sort of sawtooth rhythm keeps people, you know, turning pages. And, and I was very fortunate in that Rex Barber's son and his grandson have all of his, all of their, their dad's stuff. And I, I was able to use all of that. I was able to use a couple of P-38s, um, flyable P-38s, uh, so that, you know, I could, I could put the reader into the cockpit and oh, wow. these switches and this is how it works. This is how it, it, it felt and smelled. I found the oldest living P-38 pilot out in Colorado. He is 98 Holy and crap. he was, he was a huge help in saying, yeah, we said that, or we'd never say that. Or wow. how the switch, the switch in your plane that you were in was like this, but in the P-38 we flew, it was over here. And this is what it smelled like and felt like and all those things that I think really put people into the action. Yeah, it gives people that, that textual feel when they read the book yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was listening to some of the audio from it, and yeah, you, 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 you're very descriptive, and you do a really good job of, of just, just making – you paint the whole picture like you're in a movie, and so you get a good feel for it. You've written a lot of books, The Hunter Killers, uh, Viper Pilot, The Flight, Lords of the Sky, Chasing the Demon, uh, The uh, Mercenary – and uh, Chasing the Demon looks like that was about the X-71. Was that what that was? That was about uh, the X-1. And, and, the X-1. There you go. And who I really believe broke the sound barrier first. Yeah. The, um, I remember reading a lot of this stuff when I was a kid. I just, I just loved the lore of it, and, and it was so fun. Um, so uh, some other aspects about the book. What, are, what, are some of the, what, what were some of the things that you, that you learned that were really surprising to you or stuck out or maybe were new to you or you were like, wow, you know, kind of an aha moment? 
Well, I have to be careful when I write because I like to go off on tangents. So it's always a constant battle between my editor and myself. <laughs> and I, I but I, I found that that some of the tangents are actually really good and people like it. They like they like to learn they like to learn things without without feeling like they're being taught. So I try to I try to take all the dry history that that is written down and is a matter of fact and 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 blend in the human element try to make some of these people come alive as they obviously you know once were uh for me this with this book you know i knew about i knew about the pacific war i knew about guadalcanal but i didn't know it to the degree that i know it now because of this book and i really tried to put that in there because i wanted to impress upon people that none of this would have been possible if that island hadn't been taken yeah. and that island being taken was not just an island being taken. It was the Alamo. It was Gettysburg. You know, it was Yorktown. It was a, it was a line in the sand where we finally, the Japanese took their last Southern step on Guadalcanal. We stopped them there. And it's a, it's a fabulous story. Somebody who's in the movies sees this and says, you know, I'd make a great movie. Uh, I'll buy you a, a picture of Martinez for that. Um, there you go. But, uh, you know, I, yeah, um, I, I, I really love the, the history and I, I, that's what I keep learning more about. I always find out how much I don't know. And this book was no exception. Well, I love the concept of it because the stories of these men are, are what really uh, made the difference in, 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 I mean, it just takes an extraordinary, like if you said to me, like, Hey, Chris, you want to, we're going to strap some gas things on a plane and I'll be like, eh, maybe not today. But, you know, that's kind of why I'm not a U.S. Air Force fighter pilot. Um, but, but still, these guys were extraordinary. I mean, I, I don't even think they make these guys anymore. Maybe they do. Um, but, but they, what they, they do. I, yeah? I think they do. And, and you know, yeah. you're, it's, a, it's a good point because kind of kind of goes to what you were talking to earlier. America rises to the occasion. And I think to some degree the times make the, make the men. And, and you have to remember, though, these guys were born in the 20s or the late teens. They were raised during the Great Depression. So they didn't have much of a childhood. And then they got a world war thrown in their face. So these were some very tough men to begin with. Yeah. Uh, I, I, think, I think that strength is still in America. I think it's still here. If we had to do it again, we would. I mean, look at on a much smaller scale. Look at how the country came together after 9-11. Yeah. You know, uh, it's not comparable to world war ii obviously but people still forgot all their little differences and, yeah. and realized that we have more in common than we have apart and and they and they came together they pitched in just like these guys did the story if people study it and i'm sure they're reading your book is is like you say they had to, to fight their way back across the pacific and just take island after island especially when you get those little teeny islands and and just slowly walk back to japan it was crazy um i think i i, I saw uh, an interview that i think you did and i think somewhere in the book is there is there is the credit issued properly for who uh killed the, the 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 japanese dude yeah that's been an issue ever since it happened um mm -hmm. and and you know all of these guys were brave guys or they wouldn't have been there but but tom lanfear was the other p-38 pilot that was with rex barber when they got the bombers um and he had been very open from the very beginning that he wanted a political career after the war 
and he was going to do whatever he could to build a reputation in combat, factual or otherwise, uh, to give him a leg up in, in politics. Most, you know, fighter pilots as a rule despise politics, so he's sort of the exception. Uh, and I'll tell you that, that guys like that are the ones you stay away from in combat, the guys that are really? on metal, metal hunts or whatever, because they'll, they'll get you killed. Yeah. I'm frankly surprised he survived the war. But, um, you know, and the thing, the tragedy of it is, is the way that it panned out, there was enough credit for him in this as well, not actually shooting down Yamamoto. Let me tell you what happened. When they saw the bombers, and there's only two of them left, they do what's called a conversion. They're coming up from low to high, and he's using his eyes just to, to roll out in the perfect position to shoot down these bombers. And it's all done geometrically, you know, in your head. As they're doing this, he sees the six Japanese fighter escorts that were mm. flying with Yamamoto. And he does exactly what he should do. He peels off and he goes one against six. Uh, and lets Rex Barber now go in and shoot down the bombers. If he hadn't done that, they wouldn't have been able to probably shoot down the bombers because they would have ended up in a dogfight with these six zeros. Yeah. He plowed right through them. They didn't get him. He didn't get any of them, but he disrupted them long enough for Rex to then roll up behind the bombers and do what he needed to do to shoot them down. Wow. That should have been enough credit for him, but it wasn't. He came back and he, and he made a statement over the radio on a clear frequency that compromised the security of the mission and our code breaking capability and everything else. And he went on to claim sole credit for wow. killing Yamamoto. And wow. I proved in the book as a, as a fighter pilot and using the other P-38 pilots and some other math, you know, that had been done before um, to prove that Lanthier could have been nowhere near Yamamoto's bomber. And there's no way it was physically impossible for him to have shot down anybody. Hmm. Um, and I, so I, I've laid the controversy to rest once and for all. And my goal in doing that was simply to give credit where credit is due, and that's to Rex Barber. Are any of these guys still alive? No. Oh, that's unfortunate. No, no, they're not. I, I was fortunate enough to, to visit Rex's grave out in Oregon when I was there, you know, talking to his, to his son and his grandson. Hmm. Uh, but they've, they've, they've all passed on. Wow. Uh, so that must have given you some insight, talking to the, his kids and stuff, maybe? Or did they talk about it? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and their dad, like most combat veterans, doesn't didn't yeah. talk about combat much. But over the years, you know, the sharp edges of war kind of get blunted a little bit and you open up a little bit more. And he did, especially 30 or 40 years later, you know, when when Lamphere began to get more vehement about his claim. Um, Rex finally, you know, came forward and threw the flag down and said, well, that's that's crap. This is really what happened. Uh, so, uh, it, it's interesting when you go and you see where somebody was born and raised, you get a feel for the kind of person that they, they were. And I put that into the book too, where Rex is mm -hmm. concerned. He was, he was an Oregon boy, you know, he lived out in the, in the country, he lived in the Deschutes river Valley and grew up hunting and fishing and was very independent. And, and, and all of that kind of builds into the character of the kind of guy that became a, a world war II fighter pilot, you know, very independent. He didn't need a lot of help. He had superb eyesight, good reflexes, coordination, all of that. And when you get to when you get to see where he grew up and how he grew up, you realize how he was made into the person that he was made into. Yeah, this sounds like it would make a great movie. So if anybody's oh, listening, keep saying it. 
Keep saying that, Chris. <laughs> Have you had any other your other books put into movies? No, I've talked to. You know that that's a strange world out on the West Coast. I, you know, yeah. I've talked to some people. It hasn't amounted to anything, but I, I have hopes. You know, I think I personally think the Mercenary, which was a novel, uh, mm-hmm. would make a superb missionary uh, uh, movie. It's like uh, Tom Cruise meets Jason Bourne. You know, it's a it's a great it's a great story. Well, I love the concept of this book. Well, yeah, this one, you know, this one I could see really being uh, like an HBO miniseries. Yeah. yeah, it's a great pivotal moment in the war, how important it was. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I remember reading about the Marines just piling bodies on the beach. And I remember just thinking, my God, the extraordinary amount of bravery and, and chutzpah and whatever else that it took to do that. Um and and just fighting over these stupid little islands. <laughs> well, just... you know, and and that's and that's something I, I got a little bit more into when I was researching this. I always knew they had a plan, yeah. but I, I, you know, you see the movies and you read the books and you think, gosh, that wasn't much of a plan. Actually, it was. Then they bypassed a lot of Japanese islands that they were capturing the ones up the Pacific that they could make into air bases. Mm-hmm. Because they wanted to get to within bombing range of Japan, if they could get, if they could capture islands like Saipan and and Tinian, that you could build uh, airstrips on. Now you could put B twenty nine bombers in there, and you could bomb Japan till it bounces, uh, or drop an atomic bomb on it, which is exactly you know what they did. Yeah. Uh, so they they had a plan, but you're right. I mean, it doesn't make it any any better for the guys involved. I went out to the South Pacific a couple of years ago on a, a history channel expedition to find Amelia Earhart. And, and they're just, you know, these are just lumps of coral with coconuts on them. Yeah. You know, I, it's just an awful, awful place to, to, to fight. I'm glad I didn't have to do it. Yeah. It's crazy. And, and, and there's, and if you go down, you go down. I used to watch the fighter pilots that you would see get shot down and go down and the kamikazes and stuff. I mean, I, I was just so excited by that lore when I was a kid. Um, and you, you know, you see them get shot up and they go into the water and you're just like, I don't know, that guy's going to make that one. Um, uh, a lot of them didn't. And the Japanese yeah. in particular, they had a very, World War One idea of flying in a lot of ways. They didn't even wear parachutes for the first part of the war because it would have been a, it would have been a disgrace. Uh, they're part of the Bushido, the samurai code. You know, if you get shot down, it means you lost. And if you lost, that's a disgrace. Yamamoto was actually one of those who finally put a stop to that and bonsai charges and some other things because he's like, you, you guys are, you, we're losing thousands of men. It takes 18 to 20 years to raise another soldier you know, and, and you're dying unnecessarily. If you have to die, die, but make sure it counts. And the samurai charges, the kamikaze attacks, all of that, not wearing parachutes. I mean, come on, that's ridiculous. Look at the Americans. They, if somebody gets shot down seven times out of 10, they get picked up and within a day or so, they're back in, a, in another airplane flying and fighting. Yeah, I remember the German story about how, uh, I think it was the British, the British shot down or, or France shot down a bunch of, german german uh, air force pilots and in some deal they give them back to germany and then germany just uses them again to start bombing london and you're just like i don't remember you? that one <laughs> so, yeah so uh actually the germans that got shot down over england were probably the lucky ones because they got captured and they survived the war yeah you know, the ones that the ones that were down over russia weren't so lucky 
Yeah, I think it was France or one of the other countries. They they did some deal, and, and uh, I don't know, it was crazy. Um, so this is a pretty interesting book. Uh, anything more we need to know about uh, Operation Vengeance? You know, I, I, I think you covered it, Chris, and it's, you know, it's all – it's all in the book. Um, there you, you know, go. there's, like I said, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of background, but it all has a point. Um, and, and I, I hope that the, the, the readers will find themselves in the cockpit and empathizing with, with Rex Barber and feeling like they're there, you know, with squeezing the trigger and watching the, the bullets fly, because that's, that's sort of the point of it. If you can make history enjoyable and accessible, I think more people would, would, would read it and get something out of it, which would be good for us all. Well, it's getting rave reviews so far. Operation Vengeance is a colorful, intimate, eye-popping history delivered at breakneck pace. I loved it. According to Lynn Vincent, the New York Times bestselling author of Viper Pilot delivers an electrifying narrative account of the top secret U.S. mission to kill Yamamoto, the Japanese commander who masterminded Pearl Harbor. Uh, where can people find this on the interwebs and uh, find out more about you? Uh, they can find the book at Amazon, of course, uh, Barnes and Noble, uh, Goodreads. I think it's also at Costco. It's in airport bookstores. So pretty much, pretty much everywhere. Uh, I would, I would ask like you did, you know, if, if you like the book, uh, please favor me with a review. Doesn't have to be, you know, Leo Tolstoy's war and peace, just a couple lines saying, Hey, I liked it. And, and the stars. That's, that's nice too. Get the stars, get the five get the star. stars in there. Get the, the five more the better. Right. Um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm up on, uh, I have an author Facebook page. Uh, I always respond to people that mm. contact me. It may take me a while cause I get, I get quite a few, uh, but I will always answer. So if people just want to talk or, or, you know, ask questions, I, I love to do that. People in all my books will say, Hey, I didn't know that. You know, what does this really mean? Could we go into a little bit deeper? You know, I'm, I'm happy to talk to, to anybody that takes the time to write me. I figure they deserve a reply. That's pretty awesome, dude. That's pretty awesome. Uh, this book just came out August 11, 2020. You will definitely want to pick it up. Operation Vengeance, the astonishing aerial ambush that changed World War II. Uh, it sounds like an exciting read. Uh, check it out today. Uh, go to thecvpn.com or chrisvosspodcastnetwork.com. You can subscribe to the show and hear more about great books like this. And you can see the video version of this on youtube.com for chess Chris Voss. Thanks, my audience, for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.